The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Have you heard about the new Podcast One app? There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app now in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows and get more content from my show, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Find articles, social media, episodes, and even make playlists. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans, too. We all have our little community on here. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scene photos, which is generally just me and my dog. Uh, But anyway, uh, plus get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. Reality. Plus, get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a thousand videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio, which in my case would be a bedroom on the top floor. Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, the new Podcast One app looks so cool and has so many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening. Then again, listening to my show, it's its very own reward. I'm telling you, it's it's fantastic. Uh, So, what are you waiting for? Download the new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play now. Podcast One presents Rock Talk Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, Now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on this episode from, yes, it is... Jeff Downs, and then after that, after the break, we come back with our first in our series of interviews for Guns N' Roses Month here at Rock Talk. Uh, I've got Steve Thompson, the guy who mixed Appetite for Destruction, of course, celebrating 30 years now. And then, just for the heck of it, after Steve, um, Alcatraz, Rainbow, and Since You've Been Gone singer Graham Bonnet talks about his new live album and, of course, a whole bunch of other stuff. But first, on the phone with me, from TalkingMetal.com, it is the one, the only, Mark Striegel. Good day, Mark. Hey, good day, Mitch. Great to be back here with you today. Yeah, now, listen, it is Guns N' Roses Month. I've got Alan Niven, the former manager, coming up next week. We've got Steve Thompson, and I've got a special interview at the end of the month. And I figured, you know what? If you're going to talk Guns N' Roses, you need to get one of the biggest Guns N' Roses fans on the phone to talk about that. And so... That is you, right? You are, you are a diehard, yeah. true and true. And of course, Frank Ferrer, the drummer of the current Guns N' Roses, lives like what two streets down from you, or something like that. Uh, it, yeah, it's a little more than two streets, but within a mile radius, I would say for sure of, of my house. Yeah, so we we run into each other now and again in Maplewood. And uh, I mean, I've been a fan since the album came out back in July of of 1987, and. And just, uh, man, I'm talking about appetite, obviously, and it just, it just has held the test of time without question. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, I remember seeing, and I think I've told this before, in Metal Edge magazine, they had this Rock on the Rise section, and they had Guns N' Roses in there years ago. Little little blurb, and I, I got the cassette from Columbia House Records, right? You remember, we all did yeah. that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I put it on, and I thought, this is awful, awful, awful. How, how is this going to replace my beloved Poison and my beloved Def Leppard and all that? And, you know, then the video, Welcome to My Jungle, showed up on Much Music. And then, of course, Sweet Child of Mine showed up on Much Music. And then I saw them open for Aerosmith on the Permanent Vacation Tour in Saratoga Springs, New York. And I was like, 
how did I not jump on this bus a year ago? Like, how, how, how was I so stupid? I mean, what, great album, right? Well, yeah, all amazing record. And, and I mean, I get what you're saying because this was kind of a confusing record to a lot of people when it first came out because when they first came out, again, Axel and Duff at least had the mushroom cloud hairspray hairdos. You know, they lost that pretty quickly after Welcome after the Welcome to the Jungle video. But it, it was, you know, people had a hard time placing them. It's like, well, is this Motley Crue? You know, is this Poison? Well, there's some elements of those of those bands in this, but there's also all these other elements. And, you know, people really scratched their head. I mean, we heard old Aerosmith, old Stones. There was definitely punk rock influences, Hanoi Rocks was in there there was you know old school rock and roll influences thrash metal hardcore it all kind of came together in in this band so i think it definitely um you know was something absolutely new that people weren't used to hearing and sometimes when there's a fresh sound like that it takes your ears a little little time to adjust to it um you know i heard somebody the other day i was out at a bar and they were like oh well you know guns and roses they were kind of just doing the aerosmith thing and i i i i just had to say you know well either you don't know aerosmith or you don't know guns and roses because they were not just doing the Aerosmith. I think that was a small sliver of their influences. And you look at all the individual guys in the band at that time and, and how they were all pulling from different places, yet they had some common ground. I mean, that's what made them great, that this was a record to the younger listeners who maybe weren't there to experience it, that was all new. The sounds were all new. And and the, the thing that I think has held it through the years is the songwriting was great, you know, um, and just a really revolutionary record. It really was. And, and you're right about how it was contextualized because I, I don't know about MTV cause I'm in Canada, but on much music, it would be, here's a video by, you know, Helix. Here's a video by poison. Here's a video by, you know, white snake. And then they put on guns and you go, Mm, something here doesn't fit, right? Sort of like the Sesame yeah. Street thing of like, here's four right. things. And, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, mm, this doesn't fit. And it, it took me that year. And for me, at least, and I remember very specifically, it was Sweet Child of Mine. The video came on and that opening rift. And it's just so tasty that that's the one that turned it around for me. And you go, okay. And then you listen to that and you go, let me get this album. Let me pull out that cassette from Columbia House and give it a second chance. And... Then you get down to Rocket Queen, and you and you go, okay, th- this is this is the real deal. And um, w- w- did you have a moment like that with with Guns, where it was a song or a video, and you just went, ah, the light turned on, or were you like right there from the beginning, going, okay, I'm in? Yeah, I I feel like I saw that that Welcome to the Jungle video late night on MTV. That wasn't something that was on MTV all the time, at least not initially. You know, the album came out in July of 87, but I don't think it started selling until early 1988, you know, when Sweet Child of Mine hit. But I I remember seeing that, that, that Welcome to the Jungle video and just, you know, I was blown away by that opening guitar riff. It just, you know, the, the, saturated pen descending pentatonic scale saturated in in delay uh you know that just that just hooked me and uh for the longest time when i got the record i would play that song into it's so easy over and over again i would never got past those two songs because i kept rewinding it over and over again but as time moved on and and 
the you know we, months moved on i definitely started each individual song would hit me and and really it's every song on that record i just love and there's very few records that that are like that which again i think is why it's it's still it's, so popular today and so, so relevant and and the other yeah. thing like you're right though it's like monday my favorite song will be you know uh, anything goes and then tuesday it'll be sweet child and uh, like the every song on that album at some point becomes your favorite song and yeah. and, and you don't get that with a lot of albums um now speaking of albums because we're, we're going to wrap up and get over to jeff uh, downs here from yes um right any new bands or anything out this month here, August 2017, that, that is exciting you? or? Well, yeah, you know who, who I've been checking out a lot? Um, a band that a friend of mine turned me on to, Heavy Tiger. And they are three young ladies who deliver some great rock. You know, there's some poppy hooks in there. It's guitar-driven rock. The album is called Glitter. And very, very impressive and very fun listen. Um, I, I really highly recommend the record. Uh, trying to think of what else. Uh, Dropkick Murphys, which uh, is a band I, I don't get to talk much about on about on Talking Metal because they're not really Metal. under that umbrella. But they, they definitely have a, a new uh, good record out, too, which is called 11 Short Stories of Pain and Glory. Definitely a, a fun listen. I've always liked these guys, and, and they're back with uh, a great new record, 11 Short Stories of Pain and Glory. And again, Heavy Tiger is the group I mentioned earlier, and the record is Glitter. Yeah, and, and for me, I've, uh, I've gone back in time to uh, the spring, and I've been listening a lot to uh, the new Thunder album out of uh, the UK, Rip oh, cool. It Up. But then there's also another band out of the UK called Gun, and they have a new album that comes out on September 15th called Favorite Pleasures. I'm lucky enough to get an advanced copy of it, and it's just a fun, fun rock and roll record. So, uh, you know, check that out, you know, bookmark cool. it, do whatever. G-U-N, Gun? G-U-N, bang, bang, okay. Gun, yep. Right, um, wow. And it's called Favorite Pleasures. And it's out September fifteenth, and it's just it's just a fun, fun rock record. And so I, I'm I'm hoping that especially fans in the in North America will will take a moment to it to head over to the UK at least musically and listen to Thunder and and Gun. Uh, always a pleasure. And I shall be right back with Jeff Downs. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Before we get to our uh, first interview today with uh, Jeff Downs of Yes, I will uh, kindly remind you to please follow me on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. And um, earlier this month, I was at the Oceaga Festival in Montreal. It is a quite an experience, actually, a whole cultural thing. Uh, on a later episode, at the end of the month, I will be uh, talking with one of the organizers, explaining... Uh, what the festival is and how that comes together. But, um, you know, till then, let's talk Yestival, which is the uh, festival or the touring uh, name or the name of the current Yes Tour. It features not only the band, but, of course, Todd Rundgren opening up and Carl Palmer's Legacy. Uh, we talk about all of that stuff with Jeff, plus Video Killed the Radio Star because... When you speak to Jeff, you have to ask him that because it is, to me, one of the greatest songs coming out of the 1980s. Um, you know, listen, I had bought that album, Age of Plastic, and all that wonderful stuff, but there's just there are certain songs 
that go beyond band, beyond artists. You know, you hear my Sharona, and you don't necessarily have to think of the Knack or Doug Feger and all that stuff. You just think, oh, my Sharona. And when you hear, um, you know, Born in the USA, or when you, there are just some songs that, that, that go past everything, and um, Video Killed the Radio Star is one of those. Um, actually, another one is also I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. Not a big Boomtown Rats fan, per se, but uh, that song is absolutely stunning. And uh, John Bon Jovi, or Bon Jovi, when they uh, redid it, or were doing it live for a while, just a great, great version. Anyway, um, enough of the uh, intro, the talk-up, the vamping, whatever you want to call it. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, from Yes, Jeff Downs. We are speaking with Jeff Downs of the band Yes. Yesteval is the new tour. Uh, always a pleasure to talk, Jeff. Yeah, that's true too, Michigan. Yeah. Yes, yes. So let's talk about uh, the tour first, and then we'll talk about some other things. But Yesteval, uh, you've got Todd Rongren and Carl uh, uh, Palmer's Legacy. Uh, talk to me about this tour and what makes it unique. Well, I think about, um, about uh, three years or so ago, we did a whole Yesteval. It was almost like a d- dummy run for it in, in New Jersey. And we had, uh, there was... Uh, we called it Yesterval then. It was a, uh, it was a uh, Steve Hackett, um, and uh, Annie Haslam from Renaissance and uh, and the Carl Palmer Legacy Band. So it was it was almost like a test, and um, and you know since then we were in the middle of doing a lot of these um, albums, uh, the uh, what you, what we called the reunion, the entire album series uh, where you play the entire album back to back. So we. We we had this thing in mind, and, and and it's only really just now that we've had the opportunity to to put it into practice and have it as a as a as a touring uh, idea. And um, uh, I I think it's an idea that this created quite a lot of interest because it, it is almost like a uh, not just a, a celebration of Yes's music, but a celebration of uh, of other people's music as well. So it, it's a nice. Uh, way of uh, presenting almost like a touring, a touring circus, if you like, of music. Yeah, it really is. And on on this tour, you've got Dylan Howe joining you on drums. Um, he's also going to be there, of course, with Alan. Uh, talk to me about that and having the two drummers set up and what that's going to be like. Well, I think it's going to be very interesting because um, Dylan's quite a different drummer from Alan, and um, as as you know, Alan did have some. Um, uh, some illness uh, with his back over the last couple of years, but he's actually much, much healthier now, and um, uh, he's going to be doing the bulk of it. But um, uh, having Dylan there is interesting because it it adds, um, you know, a different style, a different stamp. Obviously, being Steve's son, um, he plays with him in the, in the his own trio, so they have quite a lot of empathy. And I think it, it adds a whole new dimension to Yes's music to have that that dual um, impact of, 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 of two drummers working together and creating a whole different um, different uh, slant on the rhythm section. Absolutely. Is is there a, a, a time, or, or with Alan's recent um, health issues, will he take some of the dates off and then just have Dylan do them alone, or is it really no, um, no, no? No, we, no, we're working, I think, largely on a, on a, on a, both of them working together because I think that that is going to be the most um, you know, impactful. I mean, certainly Alan uh, is is so much more improved now, and he's he's, he's almost back to full 
physical fitness, which, you know, for someone in his position as a drummer, it's, it's such a physical thing. You know, when you have a problem with your back, it's not the, you know, it's, not the best thing in the world. I mean, if you're just sitting down playing a keyboard or something like that, it's, it's a different story. But he's he's made a remarkable recovery. And um, uh, but you know, I, I think as as much as that, it's it's actually given us a chance to look in a, in a slightly different musical direction as well. It'll it'll be fun to hear this. Now, you're focusing on the first ten albums. Um, Heaven and Earth was the last album that you've released back in 2014. Is making a new album and new music something that still interests you, or at this point, you know, let's just go out and play the hits and we're good? Um, I think that yes has always been about making new music, and I think that um, it, it's in, imperative for the uh, members of the band to have some kind of goal to make new music. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to be this year or, or even next year, but I think that there's ultimately the fact that, that it keeps you creative, you know, and it's all very well going out and playing, you know, and re, regurgitating the old classics and stuff like that. But, that, you know, that, I mean, obviously that's still great fun to do and people, you know, people appreciate it when they come and see the shows. But I think that the, the real fans also appreciate the fact that the band is, continues to challenge itself and come up with new ideas and uh, and, you know, Show that, that that we're not just resting on our laurels, and show that the uh, you know we still got creative juices are still running, and we still you know I mean I still really enjoy being in the recording studio after all these years. Uh, so it's not just a case of going out and um, you know just 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 playing the old hits. I think that you know the fact that yes has lasted so long, uh, has lasted 50 years, is is largely because it has had that constant. Uh, evolving, uh, reinventing the, the, the unique aspect of the music. And, and I think that's what's helped keep the band going as long as it has. Yeah, I really agree. Now, on this tour, you've got Todd, Run, uh, Todd Rundgren. He, of course, has been around also for about 50 years. Um, talk to me about Todd and what he brings to this tour. And also, you know, have you ever considered working with Todd in the studio where he'd be your producer? Um well, I think largely because I've been, you know, we've been always pretty much based in the UK, and Todd, obviously, uh, you know, is American, uh, although he has worked with quite a few British acts over the years. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting combination, actually, because uh, he, he's, when you go back to the um, the Utopia stuff that he did, it's actually pretty progressive. You know, it's got, um, it's almost like, equivalent of the English progressive music scene, but, but um, you know, coming from America. So, uh, you know, if you add the mix of that with, with Carl playing, you know, a lot of the reworking, a lot of the ELP stuff, you've really got quite a progressive um, experimental package there going out as Yesterval. And I think that that's what's really exciting everybody is that, um, you know, it's got this diversity of all... The different styles of music, but you know, loosely under under a progressive rock ba- uh, banner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 2010, you did a one-off of uh, the Bugles' "Age of Plastic." You did a show out in London with with Trevor and stuff. Is that something you'd like to repeat at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I speak to Trevor quite frequently every month or two, and we we've mulled this idea around so many times, and and. Uh, 
you know, we, we have done a few shows, a few did, uh, like that one. We did one, uh, another one in 2012. So we've every couple of years we've done a uh, we've done a, a, a Buggles oriented show, um, and it's something that we you know we have discussed quite frequently as of late. And um, I think we'd like to to go out and do it one time, you know, and do it do it properly. But uh, I think because of the nature of certainly what he's always tied up with um, uh, productions and I'm usually tied up out on the road. So we haven't had that uh, great opportunity to to put it together. But I think if we ever do get that opportunity, we, we'll both jump at it. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so, because Trevor's got just one of these indiscernible voices. I mean, just wonderful voice, I should say. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As a Canadian, you had bassist Getty Lee of Rush come and join you. Uh, yeah. First of all, talk to me about the choice of Getty and then what was it like to have him play? Because, I mean, he's had a very illustrious career with Rush, obviously. What was it like to have him be, be part of that band for the night? Well, I, I think that the interesting thing was that when Rush were um, inducted, which I think was, what, two or three years ago, and, and Getty Lee gave a whole speech there and then and said, um, it, should really, it should really be yes and not us going in. Uh, uh, I seem to remember he said that at the time. Uh, and I think that when Chris Squire heard that, he said, well, if ever we get him, we should get Getty Lee to, uh, to, to get, you know, in, induct us. Um, and, uh, you know, sadly, Chris passed away two years ago, so he never got to, uh, to, 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 to get in there in his lifetime. But, um, certainly I think that, it was a very good choice to get Gary to do it, and uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't perform with the band that way. It was more of the, of the whole thing revolved around what you would call the classic yes, which was uh, obviously Anderson, Wakeman, um, and Rabin and Steve Howe and Alan, because they, they would only permit, I think, the maximum was eight people they would allow from Yes's history, so. So I, you know, the current, apart from Stephen Allen, they were the only two members of the current Yes who were inducted, uh, and of course Chris was posthumously. But um, it, it was a, it was quite a night. I think that the, um, the 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 band plays really well, and it was interesting to see Geddy step up and play one of the songs with the band. So um, yeah, I think all round it was it was a, a successful night, and and I think Yes thoroughly deserved to get in there. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, can we talk about that? The other lineup that's gone out is yes, because we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everybody's there. It looks like a great night. And then the next day, or within the next couple of days, suddenly we have two yeses. Um, yeah, but, I think we. But, were I think we were surprised about that um, because they had been, you know, although they're playing yes music, and that's perfectly within their right to do that because you know that's three members who were, you know, integral parts of Yes at various times. But I think we were surprised that they chose to add the Yes featuring to their um to their um to their moniker that they'd been building for the last year or two. So um yeah, it was I think it was surprising more than anything else. Yeah, and it's a, it's a bit strange to, to see sort of two bands using the same name. Um, the first Yes, uh, for, not Yes, Asia album back in uh, 82. Um, massive success. 
Talk to me a little bit about that album coming out and what you were trying to do, because it seems to have um, taken on its life of its own. Well, yeah, I think the, the, a lot of that first album's success was down to the members who made, made it um, together. You know, I think that certainly John Wetton's voice was very, very essential to, to that first album. Uh, as I think the songs that we, uh, him and I got, we forged a very um, long-term writing relationship on that first album, uh, and, and then you, uh, you, you know, you, you had these great musicians from from the seventies, from the big British art rock bands in the seventies. You know, like Carl and Steve uh, and John, and, and you know myself had come from uh, more of a, a, a kind of a pop background, so. Uh, you put that all together in one pot, and you had, you know, you had the songs, you had the musicianship, you know, you had all of this going. Yeah, you know, we were sort of, um, you know, we all had all this these pedigrees behind that we brought into the equation, and I think that um, that was part of the success of it. You know, we had this singular name, we had the great artwork and everything. So it all, you know, the production was fantastic on that first album. It all sort of fell into place. You know, the planets kind of aligned on that very first album. And uh, uh, and we were, you know, I think we were, we were fortunate that it, it it did incredibly well for us. Yeah, it did really, inc- it, it did well now, of course. Uh, John passed away earlier this year. Is, is the music of Asia something you still want to bring to the people? Or with John's passing, it's like, okay, we've closed the chapter on this. Um, we've not decided yet. I think that it's obviously now down to, to Carl and myself. So we, we, um, we've just been out on a, on a, on a big tour with journey, which we'd committed to, um, towards the end of last year, which was before John died. And, um, unfortunately he, you know, he, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't, wasn't with us any longer, but so we'd committed to do this tour as Asia with journey and, um, we 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 forged ahead, and we we you know we just finished it last week, and uh, uh, it was very poignant because we did a whole session segment to John in the middle of the, the set, uh, and uh, it was you know we were playing to very big audiences, you know we were playing sort of ten thousand plus people a night, so um, the sad thing to me was that John wasn't there to see it because you know we'd 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 we, when we got. The reunion together in 2006, we kind of built up, you know, this this groundswell of following and interest back in Asia, and then, you know, this would really have been the peak of, of certainly of that build that we put together. And so, uh, whether or not we we continue in the future, there's nothing actually in the book at the moment. There's nothing uh, nothing planned, and and you know, it may well be that we we never. You know, we don't take it any further. But I, I still think that it, it would be great to show that, that you know, to play the music of Asia and, and, and uh, continue John's legacy of the wonderful music that he worked particularly and, and you know, I collaborated with him on. Um, it would be a shame just because of lock that all away and say, well, that was Asia, you know, and, and no one ever gets to hear it again, you know. So I don't know, there's two... There's two schools of thought that, that, in that, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of in the middle because, 
you know, uh, it's very hard to hear anybody else singing those songs that John sung so wonderfully. And uh, so uh, it's kind of, well, we'll just have to see. I can't really make any, any firm decision on that at this moment in time. Would you um, consider doing something like Queen, where they're doing Queen with Adam Lambert and then just do Asia with somebody else, just in a sense to sort of say, you know, hey, we're not replacing you, John. We're just, we're just having this guy sing these songs. Um, that's, that's also a possibility. And I think that, um, you know, as I said before, I, I just think that it's a shame to close a chapter on a volume of music and a, and a volume of great music um, because music itself does, you know, it goes beyond just the lifetime of of the members, you know, and I think that, you know, classical music is the same. It, you know, it's when, you know, when Mozart died, it didn't stop anybody um, appreciating his music, right. and, you know what I mean? And so um, yeah, that's not in any way... Um, belittling any situation right but um uh you know i think that even you know when i'm when i'm gone i'd like to know that that my music and my my um you know my uh, contributions to the world of music are still being heard and still being played so uh, that would be my you know my own personal um take on it yeah and that's the great thing about being a musician is that you sort of have this um immortality through the music that that you don't get in a lot of other careers um you've of course yeah. done uh stuff with wet and downs you've done stuff with asia yes uh the buggles War, are you thinking of at currently of any other projects are, are you working on a solo album are you working on in any other uh configuration well, uh, i've just completed an album with uh which is the third album that i've done with a, a, a songwriter producer called chris braid who's a British guy who works a lot with, funny enough, he works a lot with, um, you know, some of the more high-profile uh, uh, artists in America, like um, Christina Aguilera and uh, you know, Billy, um, what's the face? I don't know, I can't remember her name now. Um, uh, but, yeah, he's written with Beyonce. And, and uh, um, Sia you know, and Selena yeah, Gomez. Sia, Sia Furler. So he's kind of, you know, he's he's from on the other side. I mean, he's a British guy, but he he's um, he's come, you know, he's he's sort of become Americanized over the last five or six years. Uh, and I worked with him originally in a band called the Producers with Trevor Horn, and right. he was a part of that. So I um, I got to know him through that, and and we had. We come from the same part of the UK, actually up the north near Manchester. We, we we kind of hit it off, and he was a huge Buggles fan. He's, he's only about in his early forties, the guy. He was a huge Buggles fan, and I think the first album he ever bought was The Age of Plastic. So he had this whole, uh, you know, he's very very much into that period of music. And so we started this project about five six years ago, where it was just the two of us, and we were doing a lot of. It was almost a kind of. 80s nostalgia, early 80s nostalgic kind of music, and um, uh, we just, you know, we've done two albums, and uh, a lot of people really like the albums, and we just finished a third one, so that's coming out later this year. So that's another project that I find very interesting because it's almost like an extension of the Buggles, um, sort of modern day version thereof. 
Yeah, and I was I was going to ask you because the last album was Suburban Ghosts in 2015. So the so the next yeah. one is definitely a 2017 release, or is it 2018? Yeah, 2017. Yeah, it's coming out in November, I think. So. Oh, that that'll uh, that'll be certainly something to uh, to look forward to. And uh, finally, uh, before we go, of course, uh, the big song from uh, the Buggles was "Video Killed a Radio Star." Um, and and that had a poignancy back in the early 80s because MTV was sort of, in fact, MTV dominated the 80s and sort of did halter uh, radio. What today do you think is uh, the music business in need of? Because everybody keeps talking about how the music business is dying and how there's no money, but um, talk to me about today's current state of the music business. Yeah. I mean, as, a, as an industry, it probably, you know... I mean, some people say that the actual industry itself won't exist in, 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 in some years' time, you know, because everything will be taken over by, uh, you know, by sort of corporate entities and, uh, and it will not be, uh, you know, it will be almost just sort of part of a great big um, media uh, package, you know, that, that people buy. I suppose to some degree, you, you know, that's, that's that's sort of the way it's gone. I still think that there'll be radio. I still think that people, you know, like to listen to the radio. Um, but as far as the buggles went, I think that it it, it was not so much a prediction of um, about music being uh, usurped by other mediums. I think it was more of a general uh, reflection on on how technology changes people's perception of art and. Uh, you know, you could go back to say the, you know, with the, with the silent films and when the when the talkies came out, you know, the silent film actors became redundant because there was a whole new medium that they that didn't suit them. You know, when people heard their voices, uh, and I think that you know it's a reflection of, you know, when you hear people on the radio, you have a uh, you have this idea of, of what they look like, you know, and then when um, you know, you put a you 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 put a, a, a camera a voice. You have a, a an image of what you think that person is like. Then when it maybe it trans it doesn't translate onto a screen. You know, when people go from radio to television, or 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 you know, even uh, even further, and you know, into film or whatever. You know, there's there's this this way that technology, um, you know, cha- changes the way that people perceive. Uh, art, and I think that um, you know that that was really the thought behind it. It wasn't it wasn't so much due to we weren't predicting a prophetic demise of the music business. No, but but looking back on hindsight, it 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 did sort of become prophetic because you look at it and you you know 1980 or whenever you know 79 it comes out and you go oh okay, but by 1989 you go hey, they were right those guys. You know it it yeah, ended yeah, up yeah. having you know. Um, yeah, I know, and I think that MTV, you know, is 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 almost, you know, I think reality killed MTV, you know, because MTV no longer had, it was music, you know, there's very little music on MTV now, so it's it, it's almost like it 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 sort of self, you know, it, it killed itself, you know, almost. It really did. Now, um, Yes has been around for uh, just about fifty years, just just like me. Both both started in '68. What is it about Yes and Yes music that has just been relevant for all these years? What, why are fans still interested? I, I think because Yes has con- uh, continued to 
um, develop itself, you know, and I think that um, certainly when I joined in 1980, that was another, that was a turning point for Yes, I think that, that we we took Yes into a, a more of a, a modern 80s kind of um, uh, attitude, not not just lyric, uh, with the lyrics, but but also with the the, the, the music and the, and the fact that we've been dealing a lot with sort of modern synthesizers and technology and that kind of stuff. Uh, and we, I think, Trevor and myself, when we joined Yes, we introduced that into the Yes, uh, into the Yes thing. And that's what I think uh, made it interesting for them is that uh, every time some members have come in, it's moved it into, although it's still essentially Yes music, it's moved it into another generation and uh, and it's constantly evolving. And I think that's what the thing is that, that with Yes music is, is is why it's lasted as long as it has because it's had that um, developmental side to it that uh, that, that, that interests people and and, yeah. and also the members of the band. You know, I think that it, it keeps you fresh if you if you constantly coming up with new ideas. Yeah, and I agree. And and I would also add that you know many bands change members and fans sit around going, oh, I wish he would come back. Or I wish, but with Yes, it's one of those bands where. Like you said, the member changes seems to have just added a new dimension and then brought, you know, moved the line even further. And that's uh, that's a very rare and exception. And then, members, and then members come back and they, they take it further again. You know, and I think that that's the way it has been. It's been a bit of a, you know, a revolving door with Yes in terms of the personnel. But, uh, but to uh, your I benefit. That, yeah, and I think everyone's put their stamp on it. You know, and I think that's what, that's why... There's so much great music has come out of it. Is that um, you know, it's 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 not like the, the the same chapter of a book over and over again. You know, this, the, you're talking about different chapters that make up this really really interesting history of of of, of yes music. Yeah, absolutely, Jeffra. Always a pleasure. And yeah. uh, I know uh, your birthday's later this month, so uh, yeah, happy birthday to you. Yes, we're we're only two days apart, but happy birthday to you, and uh, thank you for everything. Okay, yeah, thanks, Mitch. Nice to talk to you again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers, buddy. Bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car... You will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their farm. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. 
TrueCar users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn it, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Certainly hope you enjoyed my uh, interview with Yes's Jeff Downs. Um, before I move on, just remember, uh, follow me on Twitter at Mitch LaFawn, M-I-T-C-H-L-I-F-O-N. And now I will give you one of three uh, Guns N' Roses interviews, uh, one this episode, one the next episode, and then uh, we'll finish one off on uh, August 28th. So three episodes in a row uh, will be sort of Guns N' Roses month uh, this August, uh, mostly because I'm seeing them twice in August, and so let's celebrate. And of course, Appetite for uh, Destruction came out uh, in July, 30 years ago, so it's, it's Guns N' Roses celebration time. First up will be uh, Steve Thompson, who mixed the uh, Appetite for Destruction album. He's worked, of course, on many, many great projects over the years, uh, including uh, For Korn, Mick Jagger, Mechanical Resonance by Tesla, one of the greatest debut albums ever, Injustice for All, and more. But uh, enough of me and my rambling. Here is, without further ado, producer, musician, and all-around good guy, Steve Thompson. We are speaking with record producer, mixer, and all kinds of great things, Steve Thompson. Um, Steve, great pleasure to have you today. We've, we've done one career-spanning interview in the past, but this one, we're going to focus on one very, very special album. Uh, but uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Same here, Mitch. How's everything going? Good. Absolutely wonderful. It's, it's, uh, well, listen, I've got two Guns N' Roses shows coming up in, uh, in August, so... Uh, yeah, things are great. Whenever I talk Guns N' Roses or I, I see Guns N' Roses, things are great. So let's talk about this album here, Appetite for Destruction. It just had its 30th anniversary. Um, talk to me about when you come into the process. Is is the album completely done, everything's done, and it's just put to you and you sort of do the final mixes? Or were you involved with the process throughout where you're going oh, I think we need to do this and we need to do that. And uh, Talk to me about how it came together and how you were involved with it. Well, at the time, um, I was producing Tesla's first record, Mechanical Residence, uh, and Tom Zutat, A&R for Geffen Records, started sending me demos of Guns N' Roses. And I'm listening to him saying, damn, I love this band. I love the energy. I love the rawness. I love Axel's voice. Everything was great. And he kept sending me demos, and I'm listening. I said, we got to do this band. So the only thing bad was we were doing projects back to back to back to back. And they wanted to go in right away, and we were just finishing up with Tessa. And we were just totally burnt. And um, me, when I say we, me and my partner at the time, Michael Barbiero. So uh, they wanted it done right away. And I just felt if I'm going to go into a band, i got to be a 1,000%. 
and we were just toast. So I said, Zoot, why don't you go get somebody to produce it, and then we'll mix it. And uh, so we agreed to do that, and everybody says, are you nuts? I knew it was going to be a big record. Obviously, I didn't think it was going to be as big as it did, but I, I knew it was going to be a big record, but I thought it was very important that if we're going to get involved, we got to be there 1,000%. So we're going through all the process and everything like that. We get the tracks. Okay, Zeus says, okay, we're ready to mix the record. They brought, obviously, Mike Klink in to produce it. And we're, uh, we go to New York. We, we did the mix of Media Sound in New York City. And at the mix was Axel Slash and Izzy and Tom Zutat. Adler and Duff, I believe, were out on the West Coast at the time. So, again, you have to understand the technology we had back then. There was no computers. We did it on an analog console. All hands-on mixing, not one computer, which I absolutely love because, to me, that's how you feel music. That's how you can get the energy out of it. You know, with today's style, you know, again, I've worked on every technology you could think in the world. Things get, have a tendency to become overanalyzed. And what was good about Guns N' Roses, we just went for the gut, the jugular, and over the top. It was funny. I was reading a, an interview of Tom Zutat about the record. And he was mentioning how Mike Barbiero, my partner, was conservative like Mike Klink. And Steve Thompson was the guy. There was no rules. And he wanted to blow up the world, which I thought was kind of funny. Because, yeah, it, there, there is truth that because I just wanted to take no prisoners, no rules, and just go for the most aggressive, dynamic sound we can go for. So, obviously, the chemistry went, went great. I think the first song we mixed was It's So Easy. And I remember when we put the tracks up, there's an intro, and then the guitars come slamming in. So I basically took the guitar tracks when they came in, and I put them on 12, not even 11, 12, just to, like, slam it to death, right? And I'm playing back the song, and I think I blew out about four sets of speakers on playback after the mix. I said, this mix is right. And I remember um, Slash come in to take listen to the mix, and there was an old Memorex tape commercial where there's a guy sitting in a chair and he's listening to music and his hair is blowing back. And that was the kind of thing that I think the, the image I got when Slash listened to the mix. You know, he basically was, holy fucking shit. And it was great. So we, we, we took it from there. So we did do some uh, light overdubs on the mixing. And, but, you know, the tracks were great. You know, we just basically blew it up, you know, the approach yeah. to mixing it. Talk to me a little bit about the sound, because, you know, at that time, there was a lot of Bon Jovi, a lot of Def Leppard. I don't want to say music was fluffy, but it certainly wasn't in your face like this album. Was there any pressure from the record company to soften out the edges, if you know what I mean, and make it a little more oh, radio-friendly? No. no. Well, you have to understand, you know, um, David Geffen is amazing, you know? What I loved about David Geffen, he left it up to his people to make those decisions. You know, David Geffen would be happy listening to Laura Nero and Cher, okay? That was his flair. I remember when we had the Platinum Party, I'm in Geffen's office, and David goes to me and says, Steve, great job. I mean, I'm really happy with what went on with this record. I said, I'm sure you know this is not my type of music I listen to, but I trust my people to come up with bands like that. You have to suit... You know, Zoot and Teresa Ensenat, who found that band, obviously, Vicki Hamilton first came in on it, managing them, then Alan Niven came in, I'm not sure how that worked, but um, 
what I loved about David is David had loyalty and trust of his employees, which is a lost art nowadays, where, um, hey, he was pointing, hey, see that guy over there? He's pointing this guy. He says, yeah, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't signed anything great in two years, but I believe in him. And that, that always uh, resonated to me. About six months later, he signs Nirvana, the guy who did nothing, okay? So he believes in his employees. Now, I think that's the best way how you could be creative when you get the right people around you and trust them and let them do their thing. Obviously, in all businesses, once the suits get involved, they want to homogenize it. They don't want to take any risks and this and that. But uh, uh, Geffen was great in leaving it up to the team to do what they needed to do. And as you know, that it took about a year and a half for this album to break. I'm sure you know the story. I oh, mean, yeah. We, you know, we went Welcome to the Jungle three times, and you know, MTV wouldn't play Welcome to the Jungle. You know, just like you know, they wouldn't play Michael Jackson at one point. And I think Zoot had a meeting with Geffen. They pulled some pressure. Oh, MTV wound up playing it once at like four o'clock in the morning. Their phones lit up, and that started the process. And obviously, when Sweet Child of Mine came out, that was the one that took it over the top. That was the game changer. Now, you mentioned the Zootat interview, which was done for LA Weekly by Art uh, Tavana. Uh, he had talked about November Rain being ready at that time, uh, Don't Cry. Uh, he said Reckless Life should be on this. Were you involved in mixing any of those songs in any kind of format? Were they prepared at all for the album? Well, I remember November Rain, loved the song, but I think the direction with this record was to be more punk rock in your face and november rain i felt wasn't quite there yet developed and wasn't great song i thought it had great potential obviously when it came on use your illusion axel did what he had to do to complete his vision on where when i thought it was great you know um again it's even amazing that we had sweet child of mine on the record knowing that we were kind of going for that punk rock thing so i think it was a good thing the only the only nightmare we had was uh uh, I forgot, it was a song about six minutes long, something like that. Yep. Uh, sweet. And uh, we got a call from the record company. I said, guys, we need you to edit it down to about three minutes and 20 seconds. I says, oh, shit, how are we going to do this? So we wound up editing it down to single length slash fucking hated it. Because we had to take some of his guitar parts out. So I sat down and so said, slash, okay. This is just a radio promotion tool, okay? We have the ultimate version of Sweet Child of Mine on the album. You know, singles have a time span of whatever. Don't worry, it, it, it's being bastardized. This is what they need as a tool. So he kind of had oh, I can't blame him. If I was a guitar player, I'd be pretty pissed off too. But there was nothing we can do. I mean, how do you edit down a six-minute song? It's like editing down, was it Eleanor Rigman? What was the song the Beatles did that was like 10 minutes long? Was it Eleanor <laughs> well, Hey Jude was pretty long, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe it was Hey Jude or something like that. H how does that story end then? Was the, I mean, you know, record companies and their, and their songs. Um, as a producer yourself, having done Mechanical Resonance, which I will state for the record is one of the greatest debut albums ever. I mean, that, that Tesla album is fantastic. I mean, you did, you did not miss anything. Um, what was it like in terms of hearing Mike Klink's productions, how do you sort of, how does he stack up for you in terms of production and the job he did on this one? 
again, I got the demos of the songs. And for the most part, demos, tempo-wise, are a lot slower than what came out. So I, I believe it was him and Guns N' Roses obviously did a lot of production on the work. I thought it was great. I have no complaints whatsoever, you know, how they how they recorded this record. It was it was great, you know. I thought, you know, again, as a producer, you have to learn when to sit back and let things happen. And if there's trouble areas, then then interject, okay? It's not a question that you need to be the dictator and this is how it's gotta be. You have to work with your talent and come up with the best interpretation of the music you're working on. And for me, it was flawless. It was great. I have no complaints. You know, you were mentioning Def Leppard hysteria. I was very friendly with Joe Elliott. And I remember when he's working on the album, we've had conversations almost daily about how the re recording process was going. <clears throat> and I'll never forget. <laughs> Excuse me one second. One day, Joe Elliott goes, hey, Steve, I got a whole word today. <laughs> Meaning a vocal, one word. I said, I said, what the fuck is going on? I said, I wound up probably producing about 30 records to that one. But I have to say one thing when you mentioned different styles and different flavors. Mutt Lang was a fucking genius how he did that record. A genius. What I, even though it was super slick, it's what it needed. And what I loved about it is I loved the arrangements. I loved that pre-courses felt like courses. There was always peaks, 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 and peaks. Never a letdown on anything. I mean, Mutt Lang, I heard, would record a simple guitar chord, like a G chord, and record each string separately. Now, I can never do that, you know? I mean, <clears throat> but that's a genius of him. You know, that's what he does. So, you know, again, with Guns N' Roses, you know, you had, like you said, you had, you know, we, we worked on, you know, the history of the stuff we worked on. You had Cinderella out there, you had Motley Crue, you had Poison, you had Warren, <coughs> Dawkins. Uh, Def Leppard, you had all these bands blowing up, but Guns N' Roses stood out because they were dangerous. And to me, that was the most amazing lineup of musicians, having Axel as an amazing singer. I mean, you know, this guy knows what he wants. Slash, great guitar player. Is he the unsung hero of the band? You know, he's a great songwriter. Uh, you know, Adler, uh, which I absolutely love as a drum because he was loose. He had swagger and was perfect vibe for it. Duffy, great bass player. So the chemistry of the guys are great. The songwriting was amazing. I mean, you know, I remember when I did that record and we finished the record, I says, you know what? This is what I feel rock and roll should be at this time and place. I mean, that's what I, you know, I didn't say it was going to be the biggest rock and roll record ever. But I said, this is where rock and roll needs to be in this time and place. And if it doesn't break, I'm going to be so friggin' disappointed. And, you know, I, I have witnesses who witnessed that. I said, this is a perfect record, you know. It just—it's what it needed. It was a wake-up call, I think, you know. Yeah, it really was. Um, talk to me a little bit about your your working partner at the time, Michael Barbiero. What was it about him that made you and him such a force and such a team? I mean, you know, mechanical resonance, uh, appetite for destruction, injustice for all, et cetera, et cetera. What was it about you two that just it just it just worked? Well, what's interesting, in the um, early 80s, I was working on a lot of dance music because I was a club DJ, and that was my end getting into the music industry. And I was green going into the studio, and I would audition engineers. And I finally met up with Mike, who we used to work with this guy, John Luongo, all the time, you know. 
And I worked with Mike, and we started developing a chemistry together. And I said, I was looking for an engineer that can go from like Johnny Mathis to Corn. Okay, I need somebody who had that because I never wanted to be typecast in music. You know, I have too many too many interests and too many things I'd like to do. So after work with Michael, I would throw him a loop here and there, and he came to it like you know, amazing. He adapted to that, and that's what I loved about Michael. I mean, he went to the school with both Bob Clearmount, and they were in ba- well, a, a band called Bats. Media Sound School, I call Media Sound Studios, was the ultimate studio to learn, okay? And Bob Biero, to me, is one of the best engineers out there. I mean, he had a great sensibility. And I learned my engineering chops through Bob Biero. <clears throat> and um, so we started working on a lot of stuff together. We were managed by the same manager, and I said, Michael, he was my engineer. I hired him as my engineer. And I decided to make it my part. I said, okay, we'll co-produce together. We'll split everything together. Because I know that's what breaks up partnerships and, and, and things like that is when the money's not even, you know? So I figured, you know, hey, we have a great chemistry. Let's just split it all down the middle. It, it worked out great. I mean, the track record is, is, is stunning. Now, I know this is your absolute favorite question, and I've asked it of you before, but I'm going to ask it again just because for this show, I, I love your answers. Um, where is the base on Injustice for All? Uh, in large <laughs> cheeks. <laughs> uh, uh, joking aside, though, that album is fantastic. I mean, Blackened and all that. And I know it's not Guns N' Roses, but I, I can't not talk about Metallica. But um, what was it like just quickly working on that album? And then we'll get back to Guns. Um, Here's the deal with, 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 with Metallica. Uh, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch were managing the band. Obviously, they were managing Tesla. And they approached us to work on Metallica. And I was like, oh, my favorite band. Loved them. I, I, you know, I was so juice to do this record i you know obviously ride the lightning and i've heard all the music i I wanted to take my game plan for the sonic landscape of and justice would take master puppets and make master puppets sound like a demo that was my bar uh fleming ramson uh wound up producing the record so we basically decided to do the mix up in bearsville new york studios and at the time Metallica was on the road with the Monsters of Rock tour. So Hetfield and Lars <coughs> would fly into a helicopter to come in the mixes. So I remember the first song we're doing, Lars comes in and comes, uh, he brings pictures of an EQ setup, how he wants all the parameter of the drums to sound like, okay, to a T. So I said to Barbier, I said, Michael, I'll tell you what, why don't you work with Lars on the drum sound, get him to where he likes him, then call me and I'll, you know, take it over from there. So it was probably a couple hours go by. <clears throat> you know, Lars gets the sound he wants. I go in the studio and I basically kick everybody out. I think Hetfield was there for a while. And I listened to the drum sound. I said, this sounds like shit. So I wound up redoing all the drum sounds, okay? Just tweaking it the way I hear it. And obviously, you know, putting up the tracks, the bass, guitars, and... What I loved about the bass, it was a perfect marriage with Hetfield's rhythm guitars. A great unison part that worked well together. So you have to understand, I come from an R&B background. So there's no way in hell I'm going to bury the booty, okay? So I get the bass up there. It's working great with Hetfield's guitars, bring vocals, everything like that. And I think the tracks rock, and Hetfield gives a thumbs up. Great. 
Lawrence comes walking in the studio, listens to the track for about 30 seconds. He said, shut that off. And again, this is what, 88? So uh, this is, you know, uh, close to what I think happened. So he tells me to shut up. I said, what's the problem, Lars? Uh, he goes, what happened to my drum sound? And I think I said, you were serious? <laughs> I mean, that's the sound you wanted? So we had to wind up getting the, the drum sound back where Lars liked it. And I wasn't a fan of it, but again, it's his drums. And he goes, all right, see the bass? I said, yeah. I said, well, I want you to drop it down in the mix where you barely audibly can hear it. And I thought it was a joke. But I did it anyway, okay? So I dropped it down. He said, now drop it like about 10 dB down from there. It was like non-existent. I remember turning my head to Hatfield. I said, give me some support here because I, I thought he was out of his mind. And Hatfield just, you know, raised his hands up. And I said, so I got a bad taste in my mouth. And the one thing about me, my name's going on this record. And I wanted to, I, I didn't want to do the record. So I called my manager up, called Bernstein and mentioned, I said, listen, I love these guys, Okay. These guys are amazing, but I just do not agree the direction that Lars wants to go with this record. I mean, my name's on it, okay? And so I was ready to walk out, and they talked me into it and everything like that. I wound up doing it. And um, the major regret I have is, again, we were going back-to-back projects where I could uh, spend a week just by myself, mix it the way I heard it, just so I had my own copy of it. Now... Understand two things, okay? And I learned this. And again, I'm an obstinate son of a bitch. But at the end of the day, it's the band's record. No matter how much you hem and haw, at the end of the day, you have to give way for what the band wants, okay? And that's the only saving grace as well. I think it sounds like ass, but I think the songs are great, great album. And, you know, obviously with the publicity on the no bass, still a lot of people like the record. It's still selling today, but. I just wish, um, I remember, um, it was interesting, Lars flew me in when they got uh, inducted, um, I should say Metallica flew us in when they got inducted to the Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And we had a pre-party there, and I remember Lars, I'm talking to Lars and his kids, and I remember Lars coming up to me and says, Steve, what happened to the bass in the record? He's asking me, what happened to the bass in the record? I mean, I just wanted to just like lose it right there. You know, but it is what it is. I mean, you know, the thing is, obviously, they don't want to remix it because I don't even think they can at this point. The biggest problem is it was obviously recorded on tape. And there was so many tape edits in the multi-track that I am sure that all the tape shredded. And if you try playing the multi-track, all the tape edits have been gone and it would have been just one big thing of this. Which is too bad. And it's too bad you didn't make a, a copy for yourself with the... Um yeah, because then at least they they could sort of somehow work off of that. Had you put it on CD, they could have somehow duped it or thrown it into a Pro Tools or anything. But anyway, it is what it is. Um, let's get back to guns and and we'll 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 wrap up on this because I know you've got tons of stuff. But here we are, thirty years later, the album is still celebrated. It has sold more copies than you can than you can even fathom. What was it about? that specific album that just resonated, that just hit the mark? I mean, why is Appetite for Destruction such an important album in rock history? I can only go by what I feel. I feel it was one of a kind. 
there was an energy there. There was a danger there. It's just like when the gods come together and, and every, everything is lined up perfectly, that's what that record is. It's just, I mean, you know, what's kind of interesting, you know, if I go to a football game or something like that and 70,000 people are in a stadium and kick off their playing Welcome to the Jungle, I get goosebumps. Because to me, Welcome to the Jungle is such an anthem. I still play it in sports today. I mean, you know, uh, what can you compare it to? I mean, it just had the perfect everything, you know? If you like hard rock, it's, you know, you know, there's great rock albums, okay? You know, you can, you can go to back to Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, totally different spectrum, okay? You can go ACDC, Back in Black, if you want. I mean, I love Bon Scott days, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's my favorite. But you can pick certain albums. I mean, the Beatles. I mean, what do you choose with the Beatles? You choose the White Album. You choose, I mean, you know, that's subjective. Do you choose Abbey Road, Sgt. Pepper? What album do you choose from the Stones, okay? I personally like when they did the covers, Around and Around, and stuff like that, way back in the day. But that album, I mean, what do you compare it to? What can you compare it to? Nothing. You, you compare other albums to it. That's what you actually have to do. Yeah. It was just like... One of those albums you can play from top to bottom and not get bored and, and just be adrenalized, I think, is the, the proper way to put it. I mean, my wife to this day, I mean, I could play Welcome to the Jungle 5,000 times and she would not get bored. So it resonates. I mean, the songs are memorable. People will remember the lyrics on them. So, you know. And it was also refreshing because when, and I mean no disrespect to any band, but when you started getting into those B-level hair metal bands and C-level hair metal bands and D-level and you're down to sleaze bees and all. It's like, oh, God help us. And then Guns N' Roses comes out and you go, oh, thank God. Oh, you know, fresh air, you know? You know, that's the experience I had in the late 80s. I was getting calls and no disrespect to Poison and Warrant, those bands. Obviously, Tessa opened up for Poison many times. But that's the kind of bands that my manager is getting calls to me to do. And I told my manager, Andy, if this is where music is in this time and place, I'm done. I Just not me. I mean, you know what saved me from not quitting? I get a call from Steve Robofsky, who was um, A&R at A&M. Now, Steve and I had a long relationship. We worked on David Bowie together. We worked on Talk Talk when he was at EMI. I loved him. And he says, Steve, I just signed this band. They're from Seattle. And I love him. Would you be interested in working on him? He sends me the band Soundgarden. Blown away. Absolutely blown away. When I heard that, I said, oh, and, you know, to me, it was a little reminiscent of early Ozzy and, 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 you know, Black Sabbath and everything like that. And this, that, like in the early 90s, bands like that and even Smashing Pumpkins. I see, I always want something new and different. I don't like to stay the same. My taste, I'm still like 16 years old, okay? I need to be fed new shit, okay? I want new stuff. I mean, what, what I've done in the past is meaningless to me today. I, I just like moving ahead and creating the next, the next thing. But, you know, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, to this day, I don't think there's any album out there that can compare to Guns N' Roses, that first album. Obviously, people say we love Use Your Illusion. You know, it was obviously a slicker, more produced type vibe because that's where they were in that time and place everybody says well how come they didn't do appetite too i said artists like to grow 
okay, they want to expand their palate. You can't fault them for that, you know. I'm sure most of the guys in the band would have been happy to do Appetite too, but Axel had a vision. He wanted to, you know, and you got to respect that. And they also changed a couple of members, you know, with uh, Gilby coming in and, and right. Matt coming in. It would have been difficult because Steven Adler is sort of an unsung hero. That swing style. That, right. That's, and, I, you know, I love Matt, but, but Matt can't do that swing style. He's more of your in-the-pocket kind of guy, and so you couldn't do Appetite too. Not not with a different lineup. Matt is the human drum machine, I call him, and I love Matt. You yeah. know, uh, you know <clears throat> there's such a difference between Steven's style and Matt's style. And, you know, at that time when they got Matt, I said, you know, the band said, hey, we need somebody who's going to be reliable and nail it. And Matt was there for that, you know, so that was great. But I agree. Adler was the perfect drummer for that appetite vibe. You can't beat that swing. Um, if folks are interested in contacting you and, and to, you know, to produce music, is that something you still do? Oh, obviously I do. I mean, I'm always looking for new talent. Okay. Um, and you have, of course, SteveThompsonProductions.com. Is that still the site where they should go check out and contact? And yeah. If- my manager is Doug Goldstein, who... Uh, Managed Guns N' Roses for all these years. So on my website, stevethompsonproductions.com, there is contact info or, you know, bands can reach me on my email address. It's thompsonsmusic53 at gmail.com, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-S, music53 at gmail.com. Obviously, I don't work for free and I am busy, but I always love to hear new stuff, you know. I mean, I get... 50 million artists a week approaching me, you know, and uh, I, I look forward to it. And again, I'm into the new school and starting something new, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any bands right now that, that you can talk about that you're very excited about and just think might be that next big thing? Well, to me, my favorite band right at now is The Struts. Obviously, right. I, I believe Butch Walker is producing them now. I mean, that's a band I would die to work with. I mean, I, I feel that singer is a star. He's got a voice very reminiscent of Freddie Mercury. Looks great. I'm working with this band, uh, The Snuffs, right now from Prague, which is, is going to be the new school of rock. And that's what, uh, that's what um, I played you some tracks before. I really feel that for rock to survive, it needs to evolve. I mean, you know, again, in my career, you know, Guns N' Roses made a statement. Metallica made a statement. Soundgarden made a statement. We wanted did Corn made a statement. So right now, my energy is bringing the new school of rock, and I think you've heard it. I definitely have the right formula to be able to do that. Because <clears throat> you know, you want to make music for kids, you know, and and it comes down to lyrics too. That you know, I, I keep telling people, you need to be, you need to know what language people are using today, and be able to adapt your lyric style to that. I always use this analogy. Beatles had a huge number one hit, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. If you wrote a lyric like that today, people would laugh you down. But that doesn't mean you can't have the same content of what the song is. You have to write it in words that kids today can relate to. You know, and that's what I I love doing. And musically, you know, what I love about music, you can, you know, I've worked on rock, dance, R&B, hip-hop, reggae, pop, Whitney Houston, Madonna. And what was great about working all those genres of music, I like to 
put those styles together in new music. You know, what are the rules? There is no rules. And, you know, a lot of people get stuck and they do one thing and they keep rehashing it and rehashing it. There's no growth there. I get bored. And that's why I've worked on a lot of different types of music because I would get bored. You know, it's simple as that. Yeah, though though that formula seems to have worked for uh, for ACDC. Uh, I, I guess I'll finish on that. Um, what did you think of Axel in ACDC? Knowing that he was a fan, I was shocked. I said, go for it, you know? Why not? <clears throat> Again, ACDC to me was Bon Scott. Right. I, I, I am such a... I, mean, I remember when um, we were working on Appetite, I'd have Slash come over and he'd stay over my house. And we were going to go to the beach the next morning. He's passed out of my couch. I wanted to get him up. He wouldn't get up. So I put two big-ass speakers right by his head. And I, I think I, I uh, blessed Down Payment Blues or something like that. And it, it was on 11. That woke his ass up. I mean, you know, you talk about a formula that works with the same three chords. ACDC's got it down. I mean... Uh, I mean, Kiss does that. I mean, I know there's a lot of Kiss fans and everything like that, but nobody does it better than ACDC because you know why? It's in your face. It's attitude. It's energy. You don't really have to change much to the formula. It works. Yeah, and and it's worked for what going on what now? Forty some years. Anyway, Steve, always an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you, thank you for for that, that the insight into one of rock's greatest records, Appetite for Destruction. Yeah, like I said, you know, we had a what was really great about working on that record. And when I talk about chemistry, the chemistry was perfect between Axel Slash, Izzy, ourselves, and Zutat. We all had the same goal of what we wanted to achieve. When you get that chemistry in the studio, it's great. You know, obviously, it's good that you butt heads at times and things like that. And we have, but <clears throat> there was one story uh, I, I think I'll tell you on uh, Paradise City. We did a goof. Uh, with Axel, there's a spot in the song towards the end in the vamp <clears throat> where Axel's going, take me home, blah, 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 that part before it fills into the outro. And so we were cutting tape and I told Barbiero, let's, let's um, double up that part just as a goof, right? So it goes, blah, 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 take me home, then we hit the edit, blah, 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 take me home again. There's all tape edits. There's no digital anything when we're doing this stuff. And we did it as a goof. So we, we, we played it back to the band. And it comes up to that section. I'm waiting. Everybody goes nuts. Axel hears it. He listens to it. He goes, stop the tape. He goes, what was that? Ah, we got you, Axel. He goes, I fucking love that. And wound up leaving it into it. Little that. I mean, <clears throat> you would never think that that was actually left in there. But he loved it. So that wound up being in the mix. And, of course, essential to the song, because the song is perfect as it yeah. is. And um, and the other thing I'll just finish on here is, and I've said that eight times now, but uh, when Zutat on that interview said uh, he would have put Reckless Life on the album, I'm like, why? It is such a perfect album. What do you take off and put that on? And I mean, do you take out Anything Goes? Do you take out it? So there's nothing to take out. It's, it is perfect as it is, um, and Reckless Life was perfect coming out later where it did, so there well, you go. Again, you know, they were talking about putting November Rain on this record. Again, it wasn't ready, and I, I, you know, you can always second-guess yourself, 
And let's let's be realistic. You never know. Did you make the perfect decisions? Did you make the perfect record? There has to be a point where he says, you know what? This is the best I could do. End it. Do it. You know, just throw it out there, okay? Because you can overanalyze anything and just go nuts. You know? Simple as that. Either that, or maybe we would have added one more song to the record. <laughs> you know? Yeah, one more. Oh, oh God, I, I keep forgetting. But the, uh, the infamous Rocket Queen sex tape, did you sit through hours and hours of tape to find the perfect ooh-ah? <laughs> For the lack of a better question. <laughs> Well, that that was a very interesting part of the session. Um, we're doing Rocket Queen, and Axel comes up to me and says, Steve, you know what? I need some sex noises on this. He says, okay, no problem. I think I had tapes of 70s porno movies that I would splice together the audio and give him the sex noises he needs. You know, we had that covered. And he goes, no, I need real sex noises. And uh, I forgot her name. Was that the studio? What's her name? Adler's, girl, Adler's girlfriend was in there. Right. And Adler says, okay, let's mic it up. I'm going to fuck her in the studio and just record the, the, the moans. <laughs> so I said to myself, and Barbiero is very conservative. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? And I felt kind of weird for the fact that it was Adler's girlfriend. I'm, I don't want to get involved in this shit, you know? And so Vic, our assistant engineer, wound up putting the mics together and they did their thing in the studio. I think, uh, who the hell was that? I think Jeff Fenster was actually in the studio as the lawyer at the time, I think. And the lights were low, and Axel's doing his thing with the girl. And, you know, we got all the noises together, and then we just edited in what he wanted. <laughs> but um, classic, you know, total classic. I mean, Six Drugs and Rock and Roll definitely went on that record. And I think that is exactly why it's classic, because everything was authentic. It, it's authentic drums, authentic lyrics, authentic singing. It's just, it's just not this, you know, especially in these days of Pro Tools and vocal enhancements. And that's just a real rock record down to the sex noises. And that's, that's what makes it perfect. Well, you know, I like to say about modern recording, because, again, I record stuff every which way from the most super slick to the super, like, grunge shit, you know? And I feel with a lot of today's modern recording, you're losing the essence of the human instinct of music, okay? I think slick works great with pop music, but, you know, with rock, you want that vulnerability, you want that angst, you want that imperfect vibe, okay? I think the hardest thing of producing is there's no one mistakes to leave into a performance. You know, when I work with a rock band, uh, I mean, he was a great example when I worked with Korn. I mean, we spent two months writing Follow the Leader together. And um, Pro Tools was way at its infancy. And we, we used Pro Tools. But I used it as a tool, not as a performer. I would have the Pro Tools engineer. I'd throw him in a fucking closet. I'd say, this is what I want you to do. When you got it going, come out of the closet and let me know what's going on. Okay? And... Um, I always love technology, but I'm not going to let technology dictate the music I work on. You know, I think it's important, again, to find what kind of music you're doing. And if it's like a rock band, put them in a room. See, the can't let the chemistry work together as a band. I mean, I mean, even back in the day, people say that they're going to record a band. OK, we're going to do drums first, put on a click trap, road map it, 
then we're going to overdub everything. But you lose the essence. I'd rather, you know, it's like Tess with Mechanical Resonance. <coughs> we rehearsed a band where they came in and played the songs live in a room with isolation. Obviously, we did overdubs. But you're the essence of those songs by getting great performances. And I love to have the lead singer in the room to create that vibe. I don't care if it's a perfect performance, but I wanted him to energize the band to get that performance. And, you know, it's it, it's a lost art nowadays. I don't think many people know how to get a great performance or what is a great performance. Like when I'm in the studio, obviously I have Pro Tools. I never want to go back to tape. I hate tape. And I always hated this. But at the same time, the shit I work on is going to sound big and huge. It's not going to have that digital gaga crap. And I will work with that, but I will not sit behind Pro Tools. I have a Pro Tools engineer. I'm going to close my eyes, pay attention to arrangements, writing, this and that, and the feel of everything, and, and use my ears, not my eyes, to know what's good or bad. And again, I know vocalists. I've been very fortunate to work you know, with the best vocalists in the world, from Whitney Houston to Axel to Hetfield to everybody. So I know what it get, takes to get a great performance out of them. And that's what people want. They want an honesty. You know, that's my philosophy. Yeah, and and I totally agree with that. And um, I, I'm I'm remembering here. I think the girl's name was Adriana Smith on the right. Rocket Queen. So there you go. What a great claim to fame, uh, Steve. Uh, thank you. Great pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mitch. Let's have a great day, and hope you guys all enjoy the the the, con- the, the conversation. Thank you, sir. And uh, please uh, reach out to Steve and and and. Get your albums produced by them, uh, by him, because that's the only way it's going to sound great. It's, right? That's my opinion. I don't like making old records. I like making new music right. and, 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 and setting the bar for the next shit. That's what I like doing. Yeah. And it's always good to have influences and everything like that. But at the end of the day, if you're going to make something, make it stand out. Or why bother? And make it your own. Don't make it a copy of somebody else's. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's my feeling. Well, listen, great Cheers. mission, everyone. Cheers. Take Bye-bye care. now. Bye. Cheers. A very big thank you to Steve, and I will be right back with Rainbow Alcatraz Since You've Been Gone singer Graham Bonnet. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Welcome back. I certainly hope you've been enjoying the interviews so far. Let me end with this one. Singer Graham Bonnet, you know him from the Michael Schenker group, Alcatraz, Rainbow, and of course, Since You've Been Gone, that song that's ubiquitous to, uh, to rock. One of the greatest voices of rock. His Graham Bonnet band has Live Here Comes Tonight, a new CD, DVD, Blu-ray that is out now. And last year, they released The Book, a, a CD certainly worth checking out. Um, so here, without further ado, one of the greatest voices of rock, the one the only Graham Bonnet. We are speaking with singer Graham Bonnet. The new live DVD album is called uh, Live Here Comes the Night. Uh, Graham, always a pleasure to speak with you, by the way. Oh, uh, likewise. It always, it always is a pleasure to speak with you, too. And uh, it's good to say hello again after about 
two or three months. It's not been too long ago since <laughs> I spoke to you. No, we did. Yeah. Uh, we did an interview for uh, for the book, and then we covered your entire history. Yeah. So it gives me yeah. a bit of a challenge <laughs> because now I've got to sort of go different places and keep it interesting. But I don't want to just redo the same interview of two months ago. So, right. But so let, okay. let's talk about Here Comes the Night first. I've had a chance to watch it. In fact, that's that's why I was about a minute delayed calling you because I was watching uh-huh. um, uh, Attack Assault Live on it. And I was just getting into it. And I went, oh, golly, it's, <laughs> it's time to call. Whoops. But uh, yeah. Talk to me about that band that night, Frontiers Records, that festival, uh, and and performing live still for you because I'm watching the video, and you just look like you're having a blast. It, the, the band is sounding great. Your voice is sounding great. Uh, so just start with, with the live album first, or the live DVD first. The DVD? Uh, well, t- to tell you the truth, uh, we were all almost dead when we did that because we, um, we had a hell of a day. We had... Uh, some t- I, I forgot which country we came from, but um, we had to get to the destination to do this damn show. And we had one night of no sleep traveling. And then we did um, uh, an in-store that morning uh, before we got on our plane, an in-store in um, somewhere, and then onto a plane, and then onto a, a ferry to get to uh, Milan, and um, by the time we got there, we were absolutely fried, and um, we, we had to. We had about an hour before we had to go on stage, and I looked at the other guys saying, "I don't think I can do this." And so, if you see the DVD, there's not much movement going on from me, but uh, because we were so we were so tired, but it seemed to turn out okay, and I, I was really kind of happy that it did because I didn't think I was going to get through it and neither did the rest of the guys you know like can you manage this you know I was ready to get into my wheelchair but it turned out well and it was a really good night and there's some great bands on and I saw a lot of my old friends that night so it's kind of cool to, to do that but I, I wish I'd been a bit more awake so I was, I was a lack of movement on stage but I think uh, we did the best we could under a really really tiring day we had it was Oh, it was insane. Nobody's fault but our own, you know. Right, but but music has a way to to to, to get the spirits moving and the adrenaline flowing. <laughs> um, yeah, if it if it wasn't for the audience, I think we'd all go to sleep. I, I don't know, but the audience are, were really you know up, and so yeah, they give you the they lift they lift you up. There's no doubt about it. You jokingly said that that you had to go sit in your wheelchair, but as we <laughs> all get older and stuff. Uh, you know, some of our heroes in terms of rock singers ha- have lost their voice or their voice is not where where it should be. Yours doesn't yeah. seem to have been affected. Um, mm. Is that something that, that you're aware of? Are, are you sort of singing differently because there, there's things going on? Or are you able to mask it? Or, or are you just the same guy that you were 25 years ago? Uh, well, it's, it's basically the same. Um, but, of course, I have to... Uh, I really have to look after it. I went to, in fact, I went to the throat uh, doctor yesterday. I always, always uh, go to a doctor before I go on tour, just to make sure there are no nodes, which I had before, you know, when I was in my 20s, and that uh, everything's okay. And uh, he said to me yesterday, yeah, you, I had, you know, you know, they put the um, the camera up your nose and all that kind of crap, and you see your vocal cords, you sing notes, and you see them vibrating. Are they meeting up properly? Do they, are they functioning properly? And he said, you're doing pretty well. He said, there's some, there's some wear and tear there because 
you're not 22. <laughs> you're, I, I'm 69 years old, you know, and so there's been a lot of wear and tear over the years, obviously. He said, but you're, your voice is in very good shape, considering <laughs> the kind of music you do. And so I was, I was very happy about that, but I, I always make sure it's, you know, I, I sort of drink the right tea and the, this, that, and it sounds ridiculous, sounds very hippie, but, you know, tea with no caffeine and all that kind of really boring stuff, food with no gluten, which is a new fad, I know everybody, it's got to be gluten-free, but um, that causes, you know, inflammation, so any kind of food or drink that causes inflammation, I have to watch out for, um, but uh, my range is the same, um, I, I'm just lucky, I think, you know, um, but when we made the album, the book, the album, the album, yep. the book, I made sure that it wasn't stupidly high because or um, challenging in any way. I didn't want some silly screams in there like I used to do because to me now that's kind of, I've done that and it's time to do something different and sound, sound a bit more, um, I, I sing with more balls in certain areas of my voice, you know, and um, that's what I'm sort of doing. I mean, there are high notes in, in all the songs, I know. But uh, it's nice to get away from that once in a while because that is damaging, you know, using high falsetto or whatever it may be. It really can rip your uh, vocal cords apart. But I I'm lucky. Um, our drummer yesterday, in fact, said every time Graham sings, you know, sometimes sings sing without the microphone in, in rehearsal. He said every time, every time he sings, he almost blows my where's the this cap, you know, it almost blows my hat off. So I usually stand in front of him and sing at him, you know, and uh, it, I have this, um, our guitar player said the, the same thing. It's like he has a certain built-in tone machine or something. There's a tone that um, sort of resonates more than most singers do. And I've still, I still have that. I, I've been lucky. Um, I, I hope it lasts for another, you know, keeps in the same condition for another 10 years. Let's see. I hope so. Yeah, and which of course, uh, and that suggests that you're you're not contemplating any kind of retirement soon, which is great no. for fans. Um, oh crap! No, 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 <laughs> no, what, no. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to just sit at home and 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 watch the uh, the leaves fall off the trees. No, is that not not exciting. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Water, water my plants and, and feed the goldfish. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's not quite me. Yeah. The book, of course, came out last year. You've just also put out Ezo or Ezu. I don't know how you're pronouncing it. It's a, well, that's an abbreviation. It's actually an electric zoo. Okay. Uh, there's a name for you. Not my choice. That's Dario Molo's fault. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but uh, let, let's, let's sort of you know, put all this stuff in context. Uh, what are yeah. we doing with the Graham Bonnet band next? Because this is, you know, Ezu or Ezo is a different project. Are we going to be working on a new Graham Bonnet Band album? Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I'm doing now. Okay. Uh, apart from rehearsing, um, the, the Electric Zoo thing is a session, basically, something that Gary and I did, um, and uh, it's just—it's uh, not a working band. Uh, it's just a, a, a sideline, if you will. Uh, but the Electric um, um, the Graham Bonnet Band is a permanent band, and this is my main. Uh, baby, you know this is this is it. I don't want to be in any other bands or anything. I'm not going to go out on tour with um, Dario or anybody else. This this is what I aim to do for uh, for a long time. I hope because this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to have my own band where everyone agreed with me about the uh, way the music should go. <laughs> and uh, sometimes hard to to do. But this band is they're all with me and they like what I do. They like um, you know the weirdness sometimes of the songs. They're not necessarily 
heavy rock or heavy metal, but they can be turned into good rock songs after I've played them through on my guitar to them acoustically. I say, okay, now it's the time for the band to do their bit. Okay, what can you add to this? And these guys all have, they all get the right message. They know what I'm aiming for. And um, it's uh, something that I'm, I'm really happy about and very proud of because of, because of the album, the book, the, the album, the book turned out so well. We got, we got so, so many really great reviews. I was, I was knocked out. It's just incredible. Oh, absolutely great reviews. Um, yeah. You mentioned hard rock and hard rock singing. <clears throat> Your career didn't really start there. You were more sort of, uh, I don't want to say R&B, but, but certainly not a, a hard rock singer. And, and then yeah. you, you, you get to Rainbow, and they've got you singing the harder rock stuff. Was it sort of serendipity that, that got you to hard rock, or is that what you've always wanted to do in terms of being a, a vocalist? Well, I mean, it's something that I... Uh, I remember when, going back to 1968, the Marbles, when we recorded a song called Only One Woman. Did you know that? You know that song, don't you? Yes, I do. Because yeah. it's from 1968, then, and that's when I was 1968, born. 1968, wow. So long ago. Yes. And um, I, I got on the piano one day. We were doing a session, my cousin and I, uh, Trevor Gordon, um, you know, because we were like her soul brothers, you know. Well, he's my cousin. And uh, we got, I was banging away on the piano, and I was singing something really silly, just making up some silly song. And I was using that um, sort of bigger voice, if you will. And he says, Graham, you know, you should be doing something like that. And I said, no. No, I, I said, I enjoy singing the ballads, you know, the big rock ballads, uh, you know, commercial stuff, you know, uh, pop, pop ballads or whatever you want to call them. But really what we did do is, was a little more R&B, the sort of stuff we did when we played live, my cousin and I. And... Uh, but uh, that was sort of there, and I, I didn't think about it anymore until uh, Richie Blackmore got in touch with me, and, and uh, he, he, one of his favorite songs was Only One Woman, and also some of the other guys in the band, and that's how they found me, was, uh, you know, who's managing this guy now, whatever, and uh, at that time, Mickey Moody was being managed by my manager, and they worked with, uh, Roger Glover worked with Whitesnake, and Mickey was uh, in the band at that time, and that's how... I kind of got the job with Rainbow because they found me kind of really quickly. But it was something that I never thought of, but it was always there in the background, that other, that other guy, you know. And it was a pleasure to actually bring, bring him out and go out to play on a very big stage once in a while, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of Blackmore, uh, I'm looking at an interview from The Guardian that he did back in, I believe, 2006. And, and he said of you... Um, <laughs> He said, we were a long-haired band in 79. Every war, everyone wore denim and had straggly hair, but he looked like a Las Vegas casino man, but he had such a great <laughs> voice. Hey. He, but, he said, but he goes on and says, he had such a great voice, we thought it doesn't matter, we'll rough him up a bit, and it, he never took to that. Did uh. it really come down to just haircuts <laughs> between <laughs> Rainbow? I mean, uh, yeah. Right? So, I mean, at one point, it did, I, I, I might have told you the story about the band meeting, didn't I? The, the day I, we were in Scotland or somewhere, and I went to have my hair cut one afternoon, and he had a band meeting about it. Didn't I tell you that story? I'm not sure. I, I don't believe you've told me that, but it, but it does say uh, in the article here, it says, we had a roadie guarding his dressing room to stop him from getting no. out because he was threatening to cut his hair. It was no. pretty petty, but it became an obsession with me. That's what it says in, in, in the yes. quote. <laughs> it was. It was definitely an obsession with him, but there was nobody guarding the door because uh, that would have been ridiculous. You know, what are we, 13 years old? Right. But 
what happened was, I remember my um, my ex-wife was with me at the time. We were both on the road. We were in, we were in a city. I think we were in like Edinburgh or something. And um, she had a Scottish background. And uh, we, we went out for a walk in the city. And she said, your hair's getting a bit straggly at the back. And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to get it cut. So I had my hair cut that day. And uh, when I, you know, I never saw the band until it was time to go on stage. And when I walked on stage with my hair, you know, shorter, but not ridiculously short, he kind of looked at me and freaked out. And he went behind the uh, Marshall stack, and we never saw him all night. He was playing behind the Marshalls. He was like, what? And then next day was the, the band meeting, and we walked in there, all of us, and going, what's wrong? You know, what, what the hell's happened? And uh, Richie said, it's Graham's hair. And everybody burst out laughing because of them. What the hell is he talking about? He said, well, he had, he had it cut, you know, and he thought I did it to, you know, to, to spite him or something, to make, uh, to make a point about something or other. And it wasn't that at all. I just had my hair was scruffy in a mess. That's what it was. And I think he knows that now. And, uh, but that story keeps coming up, I know. I know. It's, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. Uh, though, it does bring up a point, though. Is there an image that you have to maintain for rock? I mean, can, do you have to have a look, or can you just go out there and just be singing? Can it just be a voice? Yeah. Well, back, back, back then, it was, uh, it was definitely a lot of spandex and Cuban heels and uh, flowing robes and all that kind of thing, especially for that kind of um, fantasy, hard rock stuff, you know. Um, think about rainbow songs like The Man on the Silver Mountain and Stargazer. It was all very kind of flowery, hippy-trippy kind of a deal. And I didn't look like that. I did... Uh, Coz used to call me the bank manager. Oh, here comes the bank manager now. Hello there, how are you? You know, and uh, I was used to it. It was, you know, they made, it was fun to them. It was just a laugh because I didn't look like everybody else. But I, I was already, uh, I'd already sort of nurtured this look, so to speak, when I was uh, doing my solo stuff before I joined Rainbow. And at one point I didn't want to join Rainbow because I didn't think I'd fit anyway. You know, but uh, my manager convinced me to do that because, you know, he could make a lot of money. And uh, so he did. So uh, it was, um, you know, I was doing my own solo albums. And this was a look I'd, I'd had for years and years. And I've never changed since, you know. So they had to take me as I was or fire me, you know, whatever. But I hope the voice was better than the hair. Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> speaking of solo albums, there's one in particular that that you put out a few years back, back in '99, called "The Day I Went Mad." Uh, yeah, and you've got an all-star cast on there. We'll start from you know Kevin Valentine, who ghosted on a couple of Kiss albums, to Vivian Campbell, yeah. of course, who did uh, Def Leppard, he the stint in Thin Lizzy, Slash, Bruce Kulick, uh, of course, of Kiss. Um, yeah. Talk to me about putting together that album. H how do you sort of well, not that, you know, but how do you get Slash to show up on an album and, and working with Bruce? How, talk to me about getting that album together, because it's a great-sounding album. Uh, yeah, I did that all in my house as well, except for the drums. I, I, I'll never forget that, because it was, uh, it was very cool that these people came forward, thanks to Kevin, uh, Kevin Valentine, because he said, well, why don't we get somebody, uh, you know, on this track, blah, 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 and he said Slash and Bruce Kulick, uh, et cetera, and I'll go, well, do we need that? He said, no, but wouldn't it be cool? I said, well, I don't really know. I, I know these people, but I don't know how to, get, how to get in touch with them. And so Kevin got that all together. And um, I remember Slash, uh, I met God years ago, way before Guns N' Roses. His band came to see um, Alcatraz when we played, I think it was the Palladium here, or some theater gig we did. And they were big fans of 
of the band. So Slash was like straight away he was in there, you know. And um, and uh, Bruce um, was a friend of Kevin's. Um, and uh, Vivian Campbell, I met years ago, and so he just jumped on. It was, we were just very lucky to have people who were willing to do, um, you know, do some work with me because they were kind of like, um, you know, we were like a, a fan club, of, you know, like mutual admir- admiration society. So uh, it was nice that they volunteered and uh, they did the sessions for not a lot of money, you know. <laughs> so it was very cool. It was it was nice that. Um, that Kevin got that together, but it was it was he that eventually arranged all the players. Yeah. Um, back in '75, you did a British comedy called Three for All movie. Yeah. Uh, was that you know as you were starting off in your career, you know the marbles and so on? Were you thinking of maybe becoming a more serious actor, or was this sort of a one-off, funny let's let's have some fun mm. kind of event? Yeah. Well, it was. Um, it was uh, that. It was a kind of a fun event, you know, something that also could feature, you know, uh, some of my songs in in the movie because it was like a, a, a it was a stupid movie about girls following uh, a bunch of guys who were in a band around the world and trying to catch up to up with them and you know making sure they weren't screwing women and whatever. It was a silly, silly movie, but it had like every uh, comedic actor in England in the movie. There was tons of people in there that uh, everybody would recognize if they ever watch, uh, you know, British TV. And so it was made. And uh, a- after the movie was done, uh, Dick James, because it was for GJM, uh, Dick James wanted to do another another movie, a follow-up, but this one flopped so badly. I mean, it was, it was ridiculously bad. And it, But he wanted to do something like, I would imagine, like the monkeys or something, you know, uh, and uh, the people in the group in the movie weren't actually playing. It was me and a bunch of other people re- recorded the music. But he wanted to do have these same guys in a second movie to have this fictitious band become famous, you know, like the Monkees did from their TV show. And uh, basically, it didn't happen because the movie the movie's absolute shit. It was crap. Um, but it, acting, I was pursuing acting for forever and I never got around to doing it but it was something I've always wanted to do but it never came my way because I never had the opportunity to to meet anyone who could actually give me the road to success in in the acting business but it after that movie was done I had these amazing reviews like uh, Graham Bonnet does a great you know they were saying like the movie shit <laughs> but Graham Bonnet does this amazing uh, um, uh, performance and I didn't do anything all I said was a couple of words here and there nothing at all and um, after the movie was done uh, like a couple of months later I had two scripts you know serious scripts come to me from um, one was from you know a guy called David Hemmings yep. the actor yeah. yeah I got one from David Hemmings from Hemdale they sent me this bloody script they wanted me to play a truck driver in, in this movie and then another one I got from uh, an, uh, a guy who was in uh, a band called Scaffold. It was with um, uh, Paul McCartney's brother. There was like three guys. It was like a, a, a satirical group. And but he, one of the guys in this satirical group, was actually a poet and a, and a scriptwriter. And uh, and he sent me a script too. I got these two scripts arrive, and I'm going, what the hell? But um, they didn't happen because I had to do, you know, I had to pursue my musical career. And it just didn't happen for some reason. But uh, it's something I, I always wanted to do, but. Uh, Never really had the opportunity because I'm a singer, really, you know. 
Would you accept a cameo if somebody came to you at this day and age, at this oh, time? Oh, oh, oh shit, yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Because I, I love, you know, it's like when you make a video, you're acting. When you're on stage, you're acting. You know, you're, you're not really that guy. <laughs> That's not me up there being all hard and heavy and blah, blah, blah. And it's the same with all the players. We're not really like that. We're playing a part. So it's something that sort of, uh, it comes naturally in a way. You know, when you make a video, you're, you're um, you know, you're playing somebody else. What are you playing that character? The uh, the singer with the, the heavy rock band, you know. But it's not really you. It's uh, sort of you, but only a very small part. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. uh, just before I called you, I, I, like I said, I was watching the live DVD, and I was watching the song um, from the Assault Attack album. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that album, because when you go back into the Michael Shanker group uh, discography, mm. That one stands out. It seems to have a, a special place in the heart of fans. And what was that? I mean, because we know how how the story ends, you know. But but how was it going into it and starting up and just being part uh, of the project? Well, it was again. That was a, a surprise that somebody like Michael Shanky would ask me to be you know to do an album with him because I, I didn't know very much about his music until I went to see him play when Cozy Power was in his band, and uh, because of um, Cozy coming up to me after the show, after I watched the band play, and, and said to me, yeah, do you like the band? And I said, yeah, really great. I said, fantastic. What a great guitar player. What a great band. And he said, uh, would you like to be in this band? I said, oh, yeah, it'd be great, wouldn't it? And he said, well, no. He said, would you like to be in this band? I said, may. And so he, he told me that Gary was going to be gone, Gary Barden. And uh, he sort of introduced me to the band and said, you're in if you want, if you want the job. Because at this point, you know, I'd left Rainbow and was just wandering around doing nothing. And um, so it was up to me to write. When, he, when I did get the job, so to speak, and started working with Michael, it was up to me to uh, write all the lyrics and uh, the melodies because uh, uh, Michael said, you've got to do this, you know, because I can't speak English very well, he said, and I can't write lyrics. I said, well, I'll give it the best shot I can, you know. Just tell me where the verses and where the choruses are and where the middle part is and all that kind of stuff, and off you go. But it was uh, an opportunity that was... Uh, it, it was a great opportunity to actually you know, struggle with some of the lyrics because I wasn't really used to writing lyrics, but um, I really got into it after a while. And it was uh, uh, thanks to Michael, I became a better uh, writer lyrically and uh, musically later, you know. Yeah. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, I brought up the band Blackthorn. This time I'm going to go different. We're going to go Force Field 4. Uh, you look at that lineup, Bernie Marsden, Mick Moody, Cozy Powell, uh, Don yeah. Murray. And in fact, I was actually listening to the album earlier today just because it, it, it's just so great. Um, what happened with Force Field? Why, why did it not continue? And because it's such a great lineup. I mean, you've got sort of early White Snake meets Cozy Powell meets, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah talk yeah. to me about Force Field. Well, it was, that was just a session band. I mean, it really was. It was a studio band and nothing else. We never planned to go out on the road. And, uh, you know, the personnel keep kept changing all the time, you know, it's like, uh, oh, will um, Gary Moore do it, or will, who will, who will do it, you know, so it was whoever was available sort of thing, but it, we had a sort of camaraderie, it was usually the same bunch, uh, but um, it was never meant to be uh, a live thing, because everybody, everybody in that band was doing something, something else, this was just a breather to do, uh, you know, like pop songs, more poppy songs, or whatever, just 
a lot of different material that wasn't in one particular genre. Whereas we're all in these heavy rock bands and Mickey was doing his own thing. He was white snaking and Cozy was white snaking at the time of the one, I think. Uh, but it was, um, it was just one of those things that was a bit of fun to do, but never was meant to go on the road, you know. Which is too bad, because it's such, such, such a great line. Yeah, I, I agree, but uh, it, it never happened that way. Nobody ever planned anything to do, you know, road work. With that, now, I know you have to get back to rehearsal, so I'll, I'll finish with, with Since You've okay. Been Gone. Um, yes. You, you've covered the songs, you, you've reprised the songs many times. Yeah. It, it has been... You know, it's identifiable to you, even though it's a Ballard song. Um, talk to me about that song and its importance. And, and for, for the sake of argument, what do you think your career would look like now if that song had not ever been part of your uh, mm. repertoire? Yeah, I think uh, Rainbow would be very different today. I, I know that, that because of Russ Ballard, Rainbow became radio-friendly. And uh, Rainbow had a different image when we actually made the um, you know the video for that song. Uh, it looked totally different. It didn't have Ronnie Dio with his devil signs and all that kind of thing. It, it was a different band uh, because Richie wanted to change the band anyway. But nobody really wanted to do that song. But it was to me, it was bloody obvious that that was the way to go. Um, so now, when you think of when most people think of Rainbow, they think of Since You've Been Gone, which is it's really nice. It's great for the old ego. It's really, it's really cool that people remember that song uh, more than any Rainbow song because before that, you never heard a Rainbow uh, on the radio, I should say. But uh, if it wasn't for that, uh, for Russ Ballard's songwriting, I don't think Rainbow was got as far as it did. And, um, you know, as far as live shows and everything else is went, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm talking in circles here, but uh, it definitely made a mark. And, uh, we still do it, obviously. We still play it live. And as soon as we play that damn song live, everybody goes berserk. You know, we can have a really crappy night. And as soon as we play that, they're all, hey! Everybody's jumping up and down and singing the damn song. You know, and I, I pass the microphone to the audience, basically. But uh, thanks, Russ Ballard, and thanks for writing some more songs for us as well. He wrote another song for us that uh, is called My Kingdom Come for this band. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really cool, too. Yeah, Russ is great. So, uh, uh, yeah. Graham Bonnet Band, you're working on new material, you said earlier. Yeah. I guess we're looking at 2018 for that? Uh, possibly, yeah. Uh, it's, if anybody, you know, anybody listen to the, the first album we put out, if they like what that is, I think they'll like what well, this, this is too. I think now we have a kind of a sound. It's, um, it's not like Rainbow, it's not like Alcatraz, it's not like Michael Shanker. It's a bit of all that mixed up in, into one new uh, band and it's, I, I'm really proud of the way the band, you know, uh, we did on that la the last album because I think we have a, a definite sound now, you know, which is uh, something I've been looking for. I, I love doing harmony, so I put shitload of harmony on everything, which is uh, <laughs> one of my things. But um, it has it has more of a vocal sound than it did before. I think it did with Rainbow or with um, Michael Shanker. It's definitely got a stamp and. Uh, the guys are really eager to get this next album done because uh, well, I have about nine songs already that uh, are going to be on the new album. So I'm really looking forward to actually getting down to that. Getting down to that. And, and hopefully we'll, yeah. uh, we'll see you live in Canada. I know that that has been uh, uh, yeah. exceptionally difficult your entire career to yeah. get to this country. I don't know why, but... Uh, it, I it, don't. 
I don't know. It's, it's bizarre, right? I mean, you, you go to Japan, yeah. you're, you're playing in front of thousands of people, Europe, thousands yeah. of people. Canada, for some reason, we just can't seem to get it organized, but we, we'll, we'll get there. It's, I know, yeah. Well, I'd love to. We all would love to go there. I've never been there in my life. You know, ever since, you know, since 68, I remember thinking, well, why aren't me and you know, my cousin and I, why aren't we going to tour in Canada or, or anywhere in, in the States? We, we just stayed in England. That was it, the end. England and Ireland. That, they were the only two uh, countries we ever played. But um, Canada, I think, is somewhere that uh, has been neglected a bit. I'm, I'm not sure why, but maybe it's something to do with promoters there. I, I don't know, you know. It's hard, it's all hard around now with the promote, with promoters. It's, it's, well, for one thing, there's no damn money, and they want to pay you like peanuts. That's probably one of the reasons we haven't been there yet. But we, we'll see. I, I, you know, we're working on it right now. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Graham, uh, always a pleasure. And since we did this a couple yeah. of months ago, I was trying to go with questions that were a little different. I hope it turned yeah. out. Um, you know, hey, there we go. Well, next time we'll we'll get back to talking about Alcatraz and Steve Vai and Ingve and all okay. the all the people that you've you've played with over the years. And but thank you. Oh, all right, you're very welcome. I look forward to doing that again. Thank <laughs> you. Have a good one. Okay, bud. You too. Bye bye. Okay. Now. See Cheers. you later. Cheers. Bye bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.